We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Amen. Yes, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are our peace. This is love. As your word tells us, the choir is sung, 1 John 4.10, not that we have loved you, but that you love us. This defines us, it motivates us, it drives us in all things that we do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us again of your great love today. Thank you for the love of moms. We praise you for all the women, the girls who are here, boys and girls, men and women. But we thank you today for moms. We thank you for the selfless love displayed by mothers. And Lord, I pray for those this uh, tender day for many who are, are hurting. Maybe a first, a first Mother's Day without a mom. Maybe those who would long to be moms. Those who are estranged perhaps from children. Lord, I ask that you would bless every person here. Bring the hope of Jesus. Give us today that comfort that so many of us need. I pray that you'll speak through me. I pray you'll help me to get out of the way that your word might be heard and not only heard but applied into every life that's here today. So we are your children. Father, speak. Spirit, speak. May we never be the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow, it's great to see you today. You sound great. We're going to worship the Lord continually throughout this time. I have a message for the whole church family. And uh, so I want to offer a great Welcome to all of our moms who are here. I'm so thrilled. Um, it's a little daunting. I have the most influential women in my life who are sitting right down here. My mom's here today. I'm so grateful my mom is here. Mom, you can wave at everybody and say hi. She's right there uh, at the risk of really embarrassing her. So uh, I'm so grateful today that uh, we get to celebrate our moms, but, but we know this. We're celebrating the love of Christ among us, right? This is an incredible time uh, in history to be a woman. And uh, I want to speak to all of our women. This message, of course, is for everybody, but as a father of twin daughters and as a man who's been impacted, influenced greatly by my mom and other women, my mother-in-law, by my wife, uh, I am a great advocate for women. And this is an incredible time in history to be a woman. And today I want to talk about the power of love, really, which is the power in many ways of femininity in the context that we're looking at in this message today. Michelle Hammond, in her book called The Power of Femininity, she defines femininity as strength under control. She says that it is, it, it's, it's power, strength wrapped up in a velvet glove. It's an inner quality, she says, that emanates from a woman who knows her calling and, and knows her value from, we talked about this last week, the inside out. Years ago, uh, Mattel, the toy company, um, made a G.I. Joe that could talk. You might remember this was kind of an innovative thing. And they made a Barbie that could talk. In one of the factories, true story, the voice boxes got mixed up. So kids were pulling the string on, on the, on the GI Joe in a high falsetto voice. He says, let's shop till we drop. 
And then the, then the Barbie was saying into this low guttural voice, she'd say, hit the ground now, hard, hard, hard. <laughs> Kids confused all over the place. Uh, this, of course, doesn't compare to the confusion that we see in our day. The gender confusion we see and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Uh, and so today what I want to do is talk about a great, amazing example of a woman in Scripture. We're going to move away from the life of David, and we're going to look at the book of Esther. Okay, so grab your Bible and hang on, all right? I want you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Esther, and we're going to see in Esther, we have a woman who was beautiful on the outside, uh, and yet she had this militant faith that emanated from her life on the outside and uh, that came from the inside out, and it changed the course of her nation. This is one of the greatest stories in all the Bible, one of my favorite stories that you'll find anywhere, and uh, I want us to look at this together. This is going to be an interesting message. We're going to track this story, and I'm going to highlight some things along the way. I want us to look at the relationship between faith and courage, all right? Faith and courage, and what set Esther apart. We've been looking at the life of David uh, and just say, I'm going to say this while you're turning there. In Acts 13, 36, it says that David served God's purpose in his generation. Then he died and was buried. That's his epitaph. But that little phrase there, he served God's purpose in his generation. This is true for every one of us. Listen, this is success in life. Serving God's purpose in your generation. What I want to call today be a, being a faithful presence right where you are. That is success. Esther is this non-anxious presence in a moment, a tumultuous moment in, in time. And she fills this role with grace and courage. And we're going to see that she knew and exhibited what I'm calling the power of love. The power of love, a unique kind of love. She was so courageous, and here's where this is going. Okay, this is going. Spoiler alert here. Esther knew the blessed power of self-forgetfulness and the freedom of self-denial. This is the key to courage in life, all right? This is where courage comes from. Now, to understand this story, if you've ever read it before, some of you haven't, perhaps, you have to know, understand all of the people involved. First, there's Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is known as King Xerxes in the Greek. That's his name that we know him by uh, better. We know a lot about this king, the king of Persia. He, is, uh, he has no moral compass, essentially. Uh, he is not a God-fearing man. He rises to power in 486 BC. Uh, he is the king of the second great empire on the planet. The first one, the Babylonians. Then come the Persians. Then after that, they'll fight against the Greeks for a couple of hundred years. 200 years later, the Greeks under Alexander the Great will take this regime down. And then after that comes the great Roman Empire. So we know a lot about King Xerxes. And here, the story begins in chapter one with a party to end all parties. 180 days of the king displaying his wealth. And in verse five, you can see there ending with a seven-day open party for all, an open bar party. The whole kingdom could come into the palace and party. And here's a synopsis of this cultural moment. Look at Esther 1.8. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. Every man can do as he desires. There's no restraint. This is a commentary in our cultural moment. 
isn't it? You be you, do you without restraint, without any parameters around how you might live. In verse 11 enters Vashti the queen. She's introduced because the king wants her to parade around in front of him and all of his drunk friends. And look at, look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. You can't come near the king. He's delivering messages. People are sending them to him. You can't come into his presence without invitation, which comes into play. And this king became enraged and anger burned. He's furious. What's going on here? Toxic masculinity to start. But we have a woman, Vashti, who refuses to be objectified by men. She says, I will not do this. This is a great moment to remind all of our women who are here as a father of twin daughters and, and a, a lover uh, uh, who wants to honor his wife and honor women. Listen, you are not defined, women, by your sex appeal. I know that a million messages are coming to you every single day. But we've got to have this militant spirit that Vashti had. We'll see in Esther and every woman who seeks to be defined by God and not by her outward appearance. We saw this last week when we looked at 1 Samuel 16, 7. You know the story of David. We saw that God does not look at the outward appearance as man does. He looks at the heart and there's a constant battle for all of us to determine, I will define myself by how God sees me, not how the culture says I should see myself. You're not defined by how attractive you think men might think you are, or how about this, even how attractive you think you are. You are. We're defined by God. Queen Vashti says, no way I refuse to be an object of your sexual desire. Not going to do it. The king is outraged. But look at what happens. Notice that this, this standing up, saying I will not be objectified, cost her her royal position. She's deposed as queen. Listen, uncompromising holiness and a determination to live out God's better story of sex will go against the cultural norm. And we need to teach our children, watch this, we need to teach our daughters and our sons to say no at an early age. They will not be objectified. Instead, they will be honored and no one will dishonor uh, honor them. And when we see this, however, when we see challenge sexual exploitation in our culture, I've learned this, when you come up against anyone that seeks to oppress others, those who are objectifying women, or any person. We see all kinds of challenges. And when you come up against the oppressor, you're entering into a battle. Because there's always one who wants to remain in their privileged position of power. And you're into a war. But objectification of women or any type person, uh, any person on the planet, leads to all kinds of sin. In our lives, we see it and we see it in our day. Pornography, misogyny, racism, all kinds of oppression. And we are to stand against that kind of objectification that sees people as objects and not as created in the image of God and loved by God. And we're going to be a church that stands for what is right and a people 
who stand for what is right. So now we see the first of a series of ironic reversals. What I'm going to call a providential switch, a providential switch, an unexpected exchange. Vashti is deposed as, and, and so that Esther can become queen. And see what's happening here. Don't miss this. The writer is inviting you into the story so that the reader can see, can you find and see how God is at work behind the scenes? And then he's asking you, the writer is saying, embrace this in your own life. Do you see God at work? Are you always watching? Yes, even in the bad, how your life might go. Are you watching to see how he's at work and discover his sovereign work in your life? We've got to see life this way. And so then here's what happens in chapter two, verse five, Mordecai is introduced. This is Esther's wise, loving older cousin who adopts her when her parents die. And in chapter two, verse two, the king decides to find a new queen and he has this massive beauty contest. It's kind of the Miss Meads, Miss Persia contest. Uh, and it's, it, it, so there's, there's 127 provinces. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, said there could have been as many as 400 women in this beauty pageant. Puts the Miss Universe to shame, right? Makes the bachelor laughable, um, as if it wasn't already laughable. <laughs> and, and so we have this massive uh, beauty contest. And here's what happens. And let me just say this. I know this is like in children's Bible stories and Esther the queen. This is more. Notice, let's see, notice in chapter 2, verse 8. Esther is taken from among the virgins. Um, listen, this is closer to sex trafficking than it is a beauty contest. Each woman goes through 12 months of beauty treatment, six months of essential oils. I'm not making this up. Verse 12. And what we see here then, let me ask you this. How many of you women, how about that? How many of you have spent more than, let's say, 30 minutes getting ready for a date? Anybody in here, women? Unless you really didn't like him at all, I guess. How many of you ever spent more than two hours getting ready for a date? Raise your hand. Honest. Like, I mean, you know, prom, something like that. Never? Ever. Okay. How many men have spent more than two hours? I've done that, probably. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, how many of you have spent more time getting ready for the date than you spent on the actual date itself. Anybody <laughs> ever done this? Um, okay, how many, of you, no, how many of you spent 12 months getting ready for a date? Probably not, but that's what's happening here. And in chapter 2, verse 17, Esther wins the heart of the king or the passion of the king. And in verse 21, Mordecai, watch this, overhears two guards plotting to kill the king and he tells Esther, and the two guards are hanged in verse 23. Mordecai gets credit for saving the king, and his name is written in the Chronicles of the King. Tuck that away, footnote that. And in chapter 3, the villain Haman, the prime minister, essentially is introduced. He's the nemesis of the Jews. He's a power-hungry egomaniac, if there ever was one. And so we see this man, he's an ancient Amalekite. They were the arch nemeses of the Jewish people. And, and in, in the first sign that this man is not worth following, the king commands everyone to bow down to him. So he has this positional leadership in chapter 3, verse 2. And Haman is, is filled with, with fury because Mordecai, a Yahweh worshiper, refuses to bow down to him. And it makes him crazy in verse 
5. He's filled with fury, it says. So we start to begin, we begin to learn about the sad character, Haman, and what drives him. He's so hungry for the approval of men that he cannot handle Mordecai not bowing down to him. He has this pride that's always measuring things up, always adding up. How, how does this look for me? He's the opposite of Esther, the opposite of any Christ follower, by the way. And so I want to pause for a moment here and think about this. There are two types of pride. One we readily recognize. It's the pride of superiority, which says this, I'm better than others. We, we kind of see that. None of us want to really live that way, and yet we all do to varying degrees. The other is the pride of inferiority. This one says, I must be accepted and approved. You, you feel inferior, inferior to others, so you must be applauded. You must be accepted. You're fearful that others will not regard you as somebody special. You're just as self-focused as the other. This is pride. Pride is always asking, how am I being regarded? This is the problem with Haman. How am I being seen? What are others thinking about me? This is a, a life of constant self-focus. This week I read this. Some of you know uh, Rene Descartes' famous cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am, a baseline of reality. A sociologist wrote this. The new cogito is, I'm seen, therefore I am. In this world of social media, if you see me, I'm somebody. If you like me, I'm somebody. And listen, pride is always asking, what are others thinking about me? Tim Keller writes this, pride is always an endless ego calculation, he calls it. Always asking, am I getting the respect and appreciation I deserve? Many of us are trapped by this. C.S. Lewis wrote this, pride is absorption of self. A ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration of the self. See, pride is self-absorption, and it comes when we feel, watch this, when we feel superior and when we feel inferior to others. It's why, it's why Lewis stated in another famous quote, he says, humility, the opposite of pride, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not focused on ourselves all the time. Thinking less of ourselves leads to an equal self-absorption. You see, so motherhood, I've seen this, in moms in particular, but, but this is the Christian life. But motherhood demands a humility that doesn't think more or less of oneself, but instead defines our worth as we all should who are in Christ by the one who has given his life for us, defined by the precious blood of Christ. We're set free from this kind of self-absorption and comparison by his grace. Do you live that way? So Haman finds out Mordecai is a Jew and he convinces the king to issue a massive genocide. All right, this is in chapter 3, verse 7. He's going to enter into this. It's a racist act of terrorism is what it is. And Haman casts lots in verse three. I mean, verse 7 of chapter 3. He rolls a dice to nail down the exact date, the exact time this massacre will take place. The dice is called a purr. Tuck that away. 
The deal is confirmed and it's actually sealed by the king's signet ring. Then in chapter 4, the, we find the Esther moment. If you know this story, Mordecai and Esther develop a plan. Somebody's got to save the day. And so Mordecai sends a message to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14. Here it is. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He's saying, listen, Judaism as we know it will not be annihilated, but you and your father's house will perish. Listen, they don't know she's a Jew yet. And then look at this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's the famous phrase. Maybe it's you, Esther. Friends, listen. This is where you've often heard this sermon preached, perhaps. But I want to say this. God has placed you in a position, in his place, right now, in this time, for such a time as this. This is not a colloquialism. This is not, this is not some cliche. This is true of every single one of us. Don't miss this, friends. You might be thinking, well, Jeff, I'm not going to be out saving nations today. I'm not going to be asked to give my life today. Listen. If you fully understand what it is to follow Christ, you're asked to give your life every single day. The Esther moment for you is for you to be God's faithful presence in that place right where you are right now. And do not underestimate the power of the moment and of the people he's placed in your life. Don't miss this moment. Esther, could it be that it's you and I'm asking you, Men and women, boys and girls, let me ask you this. If not you, whom? And if not now, when? Will you be his faithful presence, sharing his love with others? Listen, mom of newborns, I want to encourage you, or little preschoolers at home, how about this? All parents, the greatest work you may do in your life is not something that you will do, but someone you will raise. God has put you in this place. Don't underestimate the power of your influence, moms, in the midst of dirty diapers, mounds of laundry, juggling busy schedules, ungrateful kids and husbands. And and you keep doing what you're doing because God has placed you to be his faithful presence right there. It's true. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And you have that influence. All of us do. See, here's what happens in chapter 416. Esther says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in in Susa. This is the capital city, where they are. Hold a fast. She says, fast and pray. I'm going to gather all my girlfriends together. We're going to fast and pray. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish, she says. She will risk her life for her people. And we are called to do the same. To lay down our lives for others. Listen, perhaps moms do this more than anyone else. I've seen this in my mom. I've seen it in Stacy. This is your Esther moment. This is it for us all. I want you to consider that. And listen, if you're a single uh, woman or man today, stay faithful. Be that faithful present. Don't define yourself by somebody else. Women, don't define yourself by whether some other man just as sinful as you are thinks you're awesome or not. Turn to the Lord who has defined you by his grace and through his sacrifice on the cross. Stay faithful right where you are. 
Then in another, watch this, another ironic reversal in chapter five, there's a private banquet and Esther announces another exclusive banquet to offer her request. Haman is beside himself. Haman is invited to a banquet with the king and the queen. In chapter five, verse nine, he sees Mordecai and he loses his mind. Here again, we see the fragility of, a, of, a, of an approval-based self-esteem. And he even says it in chapter 5, verse 13. Look at this. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. We see this danger of, of a self, uh, you know, self always uh, absorbed by yourself. So what is the cure? We're going to see it in Esther. This is something we all challenged, are challenged with. But Haman is so enraged that he builds gallows for Mordecai to be hanged on the next day. The story pivots again. Chapter 6, verse 1. The king can't sleep, so he asks that the chronicles of the king be read. read. Hey, I like that book about me. That book. I like that book about me. Read that book about me. And so they read the book about him, and sure enough, providentially, they read the story of Mordecai who saved the king. The king says, what's been done for this guy? They say nothing. The next morning, Haman is showing up for work in chapter 6, verse 6. And the king says, how should we honor the man that the Lord delights in? I mean, that the king delights in. And, and Haman, always thinking about himself, thinks he's talking about him. So he says, wow, um, let's put a royal robe on him and put a crown on his head. Put him on the royal horse and then have him displayed throughout the, uh, throughout the kingdom. Everyone will honor him. Now watch this. Haman knows this. To, to, for the king to place his robe on you is not simply an act of honor. To say, I'm going to honor this person. He's saying, I love this person. Generally, it happens from a father to a son, king to a prince. He, he, he says, if I could be loved by the greatest one, then I'll be something. Because that's where this goes, right? If you keep tracking with that. Watch this. So J.R. Tolkien wrote in The Two Towers, he wrote this, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. This is true. Haman knew this. Haman is asking what we all want. We want the one in the highest place to, to, to love us. He's not asking the wrong thing. He's asking the wrong king. And this is what we see in this story. The king says, hey, Haman, that's a great idea. Go get my man Mordecai. Haman says, what? And Haman ends up being the one carting Mordecai around with everybody worshiping him, kind of praising him for how great he is. Mordecai is raised up in his humility. Haman is brought down in his pride. This is the principle of the kingdom for every single one of us. Then in a second banquet in chapter 7, Esther reveals she's a Jew in verse 4, exposes Haman's plan to kill all of them in verse 6, and then king orders Haman to be hanged on the very gallows he prepared for Mordecai. But this doesn't solve the problem because the edict cannot be reversed. It's been sealed by the king's signet ring. So they developed a plan. In chapter 8, verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, here's the moment, and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. 
and the plan that he had devised against the Jews, this is a defining moment. Where did she find her courage? How did Esther muster up this courage? Watch this. Courage is like, it's like happiness. It's like pleasure. It's like joy. You don't get courage by pursuing courage. You get courage by pursuing something else. You get joy by pursuing someone else. Look at what it says in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen, perfect love is what drives us and produces courage. I love this. So, see, courage on fleek is love without restraint. This is what's driving her. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish minister out of the 1800s, he called this kind of focus the explosive power of a new affection. Here's what we need, friends. Listen, it's this. We must be captured by the explosive power of a new affection and driven by a greater love. And this new affection is Christ himself. This is what brings courage into our lives. The power of self-forgetfulness comes into our lives when we understand the power of love. This is why anything great is done in the world. Through the power of a greater love. And it's God's love for us. So the king commissions Mordecai to issue a decree that anyone that comes after the Jews, uh, they, they can actually now retaliate and defend themselves. And so they do. And then there's a two-day celebration we see called the Feast of Purim. Pur, taken from the dice that was rolled by Haman to exact the day that the Jews would be killed. And in chapter 9, verse 6, it's called the Feast of Purim, still celebrated today. The dice meant to kill becomes a symbol of God's rescue. The ironic twist here points us to the greatest unexpected reversal, the greatest exchange of all time. Paul says in Philippians 2, from the very top, God in the flesh comes down. He takes off his royal robes from the very top. He comes to the very bottom, comes to us, and he takes off his robe. He lives among us. He dies on a cross for our sin. The great king dies in our place, becoming humiliated for us. And, and Paul says that he is brought down not only to die, but to die on a cross. To be shamed as a prisoner, as an outcast. But then God raised him up so that he would be exalted to the highest place. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. The cross meant to kill becomes our victory. The greatest reversal of all, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The highest, most praiseworthy one has taken off his robe of righteousness. He places it on us so that we're covered in his righteousness, totally forgiven, completely loved by him. Listen, this is real love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, as our choir saying earlier, to take away our sin. Friends, do you know him today? Have you received 
Christ, let me ask you this. If you've not received his grace by faith, his sacrifice on the cross for you, you are still under the wrath of God. You are living your life just like Haman. And let me ask you, are you not exhausted? Find peace in him. The perfect king who's taken off his royal robes. I'm challenging you. Be captured by the explosive power of a new affection. By the one who has come to set you free. This is the power of love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love today. And I pray now for every person here who does not know you, that they would receive your grace even now by faith on this day, that our lives would never be the same again. And so, Lord, we give you our lives. I pray for those who need to make decisions today to trust you with their lives. And I ask, Lord, that as we consider your love that we would give our hearts to you fully. And we find our worth, our value, our very core identity in you and worship you in response with our lives. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.